How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop. And their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. This week on the Backtable Podcast. So I think one of the first things to do is don't do this on your own. Don't do it alone. Find people who've done this and don't try to reinvent the wheel. Find solutions. So it's like you need to go from here to Boston. You don't say, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to make my own car and then blah, blah, blah. You take a flight. It's already there. The system's already there. Remember, you're going to be an entrepreneur. And the other thing to understand is risk. If you are risk averse, don't think about being an entrepreneur. And that's what I would recommend in that part. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. When your patient with peripheral arterial disease has narrow lesions or complex anatomies, Medtronic's Impact 018 drug-coated balloon should be part of your treatment algorithm. This low-profile drug-coated balloon is 018 guidewire compatible. It also comes in two catheter lengths, 130 and 200 centimeters. The Impact DCB portfolio, which includes Impact Admiral, lets you choose your preferred treatment algorithm and minimize guidewire exchanges. Talk to your Medtronic representative about adding Impact 018 DCB to your treatment tools. Find more details, including risks and indications, online at medtronic.com impact018. Risks may include hemorrhage, embolic events, arterial perforation or rupture, amputation or death. For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extendable beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Spex LP, created to meet the need for a low-profile version of the Spec's shapeable support catheter. And the new line of core catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. Now, back to the show. I'm Dr. Ali Behetti. I'm your host coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And I have the pleasure of introducing my guest today, Dr. Romy Chopra. He's an interventional radiologist in Chicago. Welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure and a delight. So we were first introduced to you from another IR doctor who said that you just kind of blew his mind about efficiency in the outpatient space. So that's kind of what we're going to focus on today. But before we get into that, I'd love to know a little bit about your history of getting to where you are in your practice today. Yeah. God's been kind. Believe it or not, I grew up in India. I was born in Burma, Mandalay, grew up in India. Went to med school. I was 17 and a half years old, got in there. And I remember as an intern, walked in and saw this French neurointerventionist, Luc Picard, do a carotid cavernous fistula. And I'm going, that's what I want to do. Uh. I was going to be an OBGYN or a surgeon. 
I loved imaging from that day on because I love photography. I was just an intern, got into diagnostic radiology, became an interventionist. I'm a kind of, I love people. I love the human condition. I love solving problems. I live by the adage that wellness and joyful living are not the absence of problems, they're the presence of solutions. I love that. That's a great saying. And I live by that. And I want to be a solution for people. And so with that in mind, I trained in India as a international radiologist. I remember Feltson and Eric Van Sonnenberg, IR, and basically they had visited India. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to the States because I just, the innovation, the creativity, the passion for life. And I just started working on all things possible that I could do. And next I know I was at Harvard Medical School with Dr. Krishna Kandarpa. I was his fellow. Wow. And fascinating was the first year. You know, here you go from India was at that time in 1989, almost 20, 30 years behind in technology and everything else. We used to do films by hand that you had to, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and as a radiology resident, the first year you trained to be a tech. It was yeah. actually one of the best things ever. So having done that, I used to do a lot of neuro and whatever. And then I wrote a lot of letters to a lot of people. Chris Kondarpa was my mentor and friend, and he was at the Brigham. So I showed up, and it was fascinating. I was like, oh, my God. I just loved every second of it. I just couldn't work hard enough. I just kept doing it. And five years later, I did a lot of research, clinical work, whatever. And five years later, they offered me chief of IR and associate professorship at SUNY Upstate. All right. Yeah, that's 1994. I'm just 33 years old. Yeah. And I'm like, dang, can you hear I'm a tenured associate professor and chief of a department? And I'd done a lot of work in quality management and improvement. You know, it's fascinating in healthcare. It's such an isolated, even though it's a $4 trillion economy. And it's bigger than Germany's GDP and everything else. But the business processes that exist in the rest of the world, and it's very relevant to what I'm going to talk about later, is not there in healthcare. Absolutely. It's what we do outside with the phones and everything else we do. So you had been pretty interested in quality improvement and systems improvement from an early, early stage in your career. Yes. Actually, what's fascinating is I grew up in a business family. I see. At physicians in the family of the youngest of seven kids, extensive cousins and everybody else. And I used to watch them do stuff. And I learned that, but when you came to healthcare, it was as if you're supposed to do something different. Sure. So I just decided, hey... Take common sense, apply real practice, business, and life lessons, and start improving stuff. I'm sure you buy at Amazon, don't you? I sure do, yeah. So does everybody. I've talked all over the world. Everybody does Amazon. Why? Because they're customer-centered. They do things better, faster, cheaper than anybody else. They add great value. I'd love to get into the the whole Amazonification of care. I'm, I'm, we're definitely going to delve into that. That was my mindset, and I got tired of the politics. Here, I'm the youngest chair ever, other than Ron Evans. I think he was older than me. Uh I'm 30-something. I'm leading an academic department, and I'm solving all these problems, but they were trying to do this the old way, and I just got fed up. Got it. And one fine day, I said, okay, I'm done. And I told the dean, I remember, I'm having lunch with him. And you know, there you are, white coach, you got the title, you got all this stuff. Yeah. You're pretending. And I'm like, okay, you know what? This is no way I did medicine. This is no way I did this. I quit. And I found Mehmet. Wow. Midwest Institute, Minimally Invasive Therapies. Okay. And I said, okay, we're going to do this the right way. It's maybe what the universe wants me to do. And it was my calling. And 
just have grown tremendously since then. Yeah. And I just started learning from best of practice in the rest of the industry. And it just, it's a journey that I love. So here we are. What year did you start Mimit? 2003. Was it a OBL standing practice at that time? No. So the f- first thing was, you know, at that time it was like, I remember, I mean, I went to med school because I want to be a doctor. I was going to be an OBGYN and a vascular and a surgeon. I just loved imaging. So I got into that, into IR. And I just love solving problems and doing this. I come to the U.S., I'd done neuro, a lot of neuro work, and I thought I'd do neuro. And then there was such a demand for everything else in PAD and vascular. And so as I was kind of just, I fell into it and I said, hey, I want to be a doc. So I said, why can't I examine a patient? And I remember a surgeon, a cardiovascular surgeon stopped me in the hallway and he's poking his finger in my chest saying, how dare you see this patient? Wow. You just do the procedure. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> He said, I'm a doctor like you are. Yeah. And you know, that's a patient. It's a human being. I connected with them. They love me for whatever it is. And I believe that humans live in the spirit, the mind, and the body. I said, you're just not fixing a tire on a car or something. Right. They have feelings. You got to connect with it. And so I used to give them my number. I started solving it. Then I realized, you know what? These large academic centers, it's just not it. So I formed Mimit, not from an OBL, and I got to do more procedures, and I I just wanted to be able to take care of people. So it's like being a chef and being told you can't have your own kitchen. Like, come on. I think that's kind of the viewpoint of a lot of folks who end up leaving their big academic institutions and going into the OBL space. You just, it sounds like you were kind of at the front line uh, in 2003, one of the first ones. So just interesting. I did. I was. The important thing there is that somehow it became that two things, I think goes both ways. A lot of the radiologists felt that because they were radiologists, they owned the XA bream. You don't. These are all tools. And when Marie Curie discovered or invented the X-ray beam or discovered the X-ray beam, she didn't say, I own this. Right. And I think that was part of the problem. And all tools are designed to serve a human need. And as I started doing that, I made a promise to myself, I got to be patient connected. So the first thing I did was open an office. Okay. And there was a vascular surgeon who I had done a procedure on one of his relatives or something. He was so impressed. He actually left me his entire practice, Dr. Graziano. What? That's amazing. He left me entire (laughs) vascular practice. And the hospital said, oh, my God. And he was very respected. Yeah. So I started a clinic in 2003. No, I, I, 2004, nobody knew about EMRs. Primary care docs didn't have an EMR and I had an EMR. It wasn't to be fancy or this, that. It was like, hey, I want to be able to solve the patient's problems. And so I started seeing patients and built a clinic here. So give me like kind of like the 3,000 foot overview of the makeup of a practice that we don't hear about in training. Yes. So the first thing is we are in the business of taking care of people. Absolutely. And we as humans need care. And even before you're born, you need care, prenatal care. In and after you die, you need postpartum care. We can't be born ourselves. You can't bury or cremate yourself. That's number one. Care is the core foundation human value. So foundational human value is kindness. You will never meet somebody who's not kind care. If you don't care, you don't need to be in healthcare. So healthcare depends on kindness and care. Then it is about solving people's problems. What do humans want? They want to live as long as possible and have a great life. It's not about how fancy the procedure is. It's not about how good you are and what technology you use. 
It is about solving a human being's problems. And they come at three levels. Spiritual, emotional, where you feel. Is it? Intellectual, where you think. In your body, where things are happening. Yes, we learn how to poke things under x-ray and this and that. But then you're solving people's problems. Then along that, what does, if you have mice at home, what do you care about? Not the fanciest mousetrap. You care that you don't have mice anymore. Right. And you want to go about living your life to the best things that you want. You don't go around saying, oh, you know what? I need to find the best diagnosis and the best treatment. You just want to be normal. So the word disease is dis-ease. If you are not at ease, now you got a disease. The problem we have in this country is, or most of the modern world is, we're all hunting diagnosis. Sure. But actually what we want is wellness and we want to feel good. So first thing is patient-centered. So I may know something, I have all these fancy things, but it doesn't mean well to the patient. It doesn't make sense. So patient-centered. Second is evidence-based. You don't want to just be folk around. And then third thing is you do it better, faster, cheaper. In the real world of the Amazons, the Costco, and every other company, they have figured this out. It's customer-centered. So if you have Amazon, they know you, they know what you want, and then they serve your need, except they do it win-win. They get value, you get value. Most of the big centers, you can't find parking, you can't reach the doctor, but Amazon, one click, you're there. Costco, one click, you'll come in for them. The ease of use of a product is so underestimated, right? Like, that's why we keep returning to these sites. That's why these places are so successful. Could you kind of go into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty for maybe a new IR, kind of talking about revenue cycle management, the patient contract negotiations, all the practice management stuff, and things like that? So the very first thing is we are in the business of taking care of people. And what is a business? The business is exchange of value. Now, if you go to a store and you want you're buying a coffee, pizza, whatever. They give you a product, you give them money. There's no third party. <laughs> in healthcare, especially in the US, you have a third party. Patient is the first party, the doctor is the second party. Insurance is the third party. And what insurance is, is nothing but collective risk management. Everybody pools money and then we work. But it's gotten really complicated now. So the first thing that a young IR needs to say is, I'm going to be patient-centered. Okay. And you cannot do this in isolation. you got to be on a platform where you have managing information. So I'm going to kind of digress for one second, if you'll permit me. One is data. Everybody talks about data, data, data. So you're driving your car. You, there, you see a traffic light. The data is red light, green light, amber. There's data. Information is that that's a traffic light. Knowledge is, I know I need to stop when it's red. Wisdom is, if I don't stop at red, I'm going to get hit. So there's data, information, which is a little processed data, knowledge, which is internalized, and wisdom is, why should I do this? If you don't have data, you can't have information. You don't have information, you can't have knowledge. You don't have knowledge, you don't know why you're doing this. So IRs need to start thinking about, hey, I'm first taking care of a human being. It's not just a procedure. Second, after that is I need to be in a collaborative, I need to be centered on the patient. I need to be connected with them. You can't do this alone, so you got to collaborate. In today's world of collaboration, you need to be on some kind of platform. And EHRs are not the only platforms. That's where I've been devoted my I have devoted the last kind of seven to 10 years of my life. And 
EHRs are the source of truth for clinical information, and EHRs were designed purely for billing insurance companies. But engagement such as, you're a physician, but I'm sure you and your family have a primary care physician or others. Can you text them right now? 99% of people can't. No, but guess what? All my patients can text us, email us, call us anytime. That's the connection, including their family members. So you got to be centered on the patient and then settle on a platform. Now, it's not that easy right away, but we're working towards that. Then after that, you want to make sure you're adding value for the patient. And now you're talking about pre-authorization. Now you got a third party. That's the insurance company. You'll man- If you have your information right, now they have to pay. Insurance companies, I know this is a podcast, but I'm going to say it, they're not 100% of the patient care business. They are managing money and risk. I know I've worked for some of them. And what happens is, if let's say they got a million dollars, they have a stop loss. They can have to spend 80% and they can make 20%. The minute they start approaching their stop losses, pre-authorizations go up. And it's a double-sided game because sometimes on the provider side, there are the minor procedures that people just overuse them. They have used a lot of data and analytics to say, hey, what's the trend? And it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game, unfortunately. At some point, I pray that the payers and the providers will get more connected. But having said that, United Healthcare is the largest practice company in the world. They have four, 5,000 physicians, care providers, and they also they own outpatient centers. So that's a whole different discussion. But for the IRs, they need to understand patients, the other providers, and payers. And none of this is taught in our programs, training programs, et cetera. Does that make sense to you so far? It does, yeah. I'd like to kind of delve a little bit farther into the very specific aspects of a practice. So I appreciate the, I did ask for, it's my fault, right? I asked for a 3,000 foot overview and you did give me a 3,000 foot overview. So that's on me. But like, let's break it down for a new physician, kind of the different players in the game. So like revenue cycle management, patient contract negotiations, like the practice management stuff, the site of service, that stuff everything like that. So, sure. So the first things first, most IRs that I've known tend to go join a diagnostic radiology group. Correct. And then they kind of bitch and moan about those guys <laughs> don't have a connected on. So I say it's like a Navy SEAL goes join the traffic cop <laughs> and then say, oh, they're not letting me jump out of planes. They want me to manage traffic. What? Who put a gun to your head? So number one, if you're a Navy SEAL, go join guys who jump out of plane. Mm. So if you're going to be an IR and want to be in quote-unquote clinical medicine and take care of people and are directly patient-facing, not sitting in a lab, just doing some pathology work or, or just reading films, in that case, first of all, you need to be in a clinical environment, which means you have to have an office. If you have an office, imagine Amazon and Costco saying, we'll do everything on paper. You can't. Yeah. You need a good system. First thing is you'll need an EHR. That's the source of truth for all of this. You need now, unfortunately, a lot of training. Pro- I've been a chair of a department. I've trained many fellows, residents. Those programs don't teach you about, for example, people come to you because they have a problem. That's now their ICD-10 codes, their SNOMED codes, their classifications of disease. Then there's a goal. The goal is to first discover what the problem is and then solve the problem. 
When you have that, it's a care plan. Once you have the care plan, people have allergies, people have medications, people have all this. And you can't just say, I do a procedure and somebody else will do the rest of the work. Got to get involved in all of that. Mm -hmm. Once it, that's where your EHR comes into play. Then you got to work on, hey, this is the problem. These are my codes. This is what I need to do to solve the problem. Now, if you're doing an ENM, you have CPT codes. If you're doing a procedure, you have CPT codes. People don't teach this often, so you find a place where you can go learn this, and it's not an academic exercise. You have to, it's real business. Mm -hmm. Once you start doing this, you then get into, hey, how am I going to run this business? Then you start working on, okay, I need to find a patient. I need to collect all the information. They're not paying you cash, so who's going to pay you? And insurance, now I need to understand insurance. There are systems available to do that. You can start with an EHR. EHRs, too, and they're getting better by the day, will do the practice management side. Okay. Uh, they do a little better, but there are a lot of tools. We've actually built a platform. I, I started a whole different company. that I call it Advanced Practice Management. We know everything about the patient. We know everything about all the providers. We know about interoperability. We now know everything about the payer. We know their plans. Then you got to understand that the insurance company who's going to pay, believe me, does not want to pay you. So therefore they say, hey, I want pre-authorization. That means you got to get all the right information together. You can't do this manually, not in today's day and age. That's when you need to work. So the mom and pop kind of, I'm just going to go start a little isolated clinical practice on my own. They're mostly done. Yeah. You need to be able to get where, get the help. I mean, if you have to go start a restaurant, you just can't do it yourself. You need scheduling stuff. You need management stuff. You'll need where to buy my food, how do I procure it, chefs, kitchens, etc. That needs money. For those people who want to re start an OBL and do this and start a business, they should read E-Myth by Michael Gerber. It's now an older book. Okay. He talks about the entrepreneurial myth. And about how they do it, seven centers of excellence, et cetera. We don't need to get into it now. But you have to understand that when you step out and want to do your own practice, you are now talking about being an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And it, I mean, you want to be an entrepreneur, you're running a business. And there's one word as an entrepreneur you must know, risk. You're going to invest some money in this. And then the next word you need to know is systems. You have to find systems in place. Now, you can't do this all yourself. You're a doc. You know how to do this well. Find the help. There are people out there and companies out there to do that. Does that make sense so far? It does. You go in and you see a lot of different practices, right? What do you think the number one source of inefficiency is that you see in outpatient-based labs that you're asked to help with? First is they don't have all the information that's needed. They have an EMR and then they have some info, and they have no clue. And then the next problem that I see, it's all about doing a procedure. Uh -huh. They don't know about anything else. I mean, if you look at PAD, I do tons of PAD. And a lot of these patients are obviously old. Some are even in dementia, some are booms, some are all this stuff. And they have barriers to care. How many IRs do you think know well about barriers to care or social determinants? Sure, it's not up there. It's not up there. All they want to do is, how am I going to blow up? But I'll tell you how it affects. <laughs> Barriers to care, transportation. How do I get a patient from there to here? 
They don't speak the language, maybe. Insurance pre-authorization is a barrier to care. Yeah. Then on top of that, morbidly obese, they need a stretcher versus a wheelchair versus a some higher lift or something. And on top of that, they can't give consent. Now you got to deal with the family. Most IRs that I go and see, all they think is all they got to do is blow a balloon, put a stent, use a laser, and that's all they want to do. Mm. And they got a great outcome. I got flow. And now they want to be millionaires. I'm like, slow down. You got to <laughs> take care of the patient. You're not just fixing the tire on a car. So then you get into the, what are the allergies? What are the meds? What are the problems? What is the care plan? Who am I connecting with? Who else has done this together? It is really about managing the care overall. That's the biggest challenge I see. And I've been doing this for a very long time. My first SIR was 1990. 1989-1990. And I remember the conversation was, should we have a clinic? <laughs> Two years ago or three years ago, I'm asked to speak at the SIR. Guess what the conversation was? Should we have a clinic? <laughs> I almost wanted to have a heart attack right there. I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> are we still having this conversation? It's like a chef saying, should I have a kitchen? I'm like, come on, as a chef, your job is to feed people. Anything that goes with that aspect not just, I made the omelet, now I don't care what happens. I don't care where the egg comes from. I don't care how it, That's the problem. The second problem I see with IRs is they embed themselves in diagnostic radiology. Why? I've been the chair of a diagnostic radiology program. Sure. I mean, it makes sense. That's the standard pathway that most IRs get trained at. True. Why do they do that, though? Not because of love of medicine, because they're being paid well. Yeah. And then you have these hospital contracts. So in 2003, I quit. I was a chairman, for heaven's sake, on a 10-year program. I just had to play the politics a bit. You have to focus on clinical care. If that's the case, then stop pretending to be that. And don't say, I'm going to do diagnostic radiology and I'm going to bitch at them because they don't let me see a clinic. Go and join a clinic. Go take care of a patient. You see my point? A lot of practices are looking at different EMRs, and there's just so many options on the market right now. How can a practice accurately evaluate an EMR for their use? Yeah, so I think I was helping some folks on this, and I've investigated a lot. EMRs, they're the very big ones like the Epic and the Cerner, and they kind of hold everybody hostage almost in a way. SIR had built a high IQ program, but they got stuck. And I was there. I did it. I used it. The technology got old, and they didn't keep up. And they got so stuck in, again, just IR. Oh, I don't think I realized that the SIR developed that program. Yes, it was there a long time ago. I don't know. But, you know, they were focused on inventory and some of those things. And that's my point. EMRs are EHR, electronic health record, electronic medical record. Because we grew out of radiology information systems, we were designed more to kind of be a little more technical and more designed towards procedures. Big mistake. So what you really, if you look at an EHR first, find something that's in the cloud. My favorite is Advanced MD. I use them. I work with them. There's Athena Health. But just like value, if anything, you buy a car, you buy a cheap car, you get what you pay for. You buy an expensive car, you get what you pay for. If you're looking for good value and good, you know, whatever. I drive a Tesla. I know why I drive it. I like it. Some like Mercedes, but same with EHRs, there's a lot of them out there, but none of them are designed entirely for EHR. I just spun off a company that's working on building that where we have the vascular templates created, IR templates created, 
et cetera, where you take care of a patient, solve those problems. But first rule, I would say, make sure it's SaaS-based. Don't have any servers, not on hosting, site, whatever. That's number one. Number two is make sure that your practice management, that's the scheduling, all that stuff, insurance, yeah. pre most EHRs have it. You work on the front end. Then you have the clinical information about the patient. So patient comes in. So think about the last time you or your kids went to a doc. You had to fill out your forms. What are you? They want to know your allergies. They want to know everything else, the review of systems. Make sure they have enough templates for that. Mm -hmm. Then after that, if I do cardiovascular, I have a cardiovascular template. You have ENM coding. You need to know your history, your all the different things that you do, social, blah, 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 history. Then you have physical exam, and then you have medical decision-making, and then you make your assessment and you make a care plan. Make sure you have those that are easy to use. Then most people somehow farm billing out to somebody else, which is on another system. Big mistake. Mm. Have an integrated system that from the front desk, when they registered the patient, got the insurance information, got the medical information, you saw the patient, you created the plan, you created, put the diagnosis codes all the way to then on the same platform, make sure it goes to billing. Then they can come back and see your note. They can check if there was something wrong. Most people have a different practice management here. Somebody doing billing separately, EHR separately, faxes back and forth. Uh-uh. So you're not necessarily advocating for in-house billing and coding for OBLs, no, but you just want to, that's, that's cost prohibitive, right? But the idea is that everybody can see all the same information if it's all accessible within the EMR. Yeah. It's called democratization of data. I mean, we use systems. People talk about efficiencies. We use systems that the top companies in the world use. For example, we use Slack. Any, my front desk person, my biller can see everything that I can see. Sure. So guess what happens? If there's a coding problem, they see it. I just get it. What's chatter or Slack message saying, hey, we've got this problem. Can you clarify this? It's instantaneous. That's the problem. Unfortunately, EHRs, the way I've seen it, and I've done this for a very long time, what they tend to do is they want to control everything. So they trap you in there and you can't just get out of there. And I'm happy to help anybody who wants advice on this for no cost is to guide them in the right direction because otherwise they all want to sell. Once you're trapped in, it's like getting married, getting divorced is a pain. And then people struggle. I, I have been to four EMRs. Give me like your top three or four favorite EMRs that you like for IROBLs. So for today, I use Advanced MD, which is my favorite. We optimized it and I've recommended it to quite a few people. They're not 100% designed only for interventional radiology or OBL. That's mistake yeah. number one. That is just a site of service. What if you saw this? I call this, and forgive me, I'm going to digress for one second. Yeah, yeah. We see patients at home. Uh huh. I see them in nursing homes. I see them in clinic. I see them in hospitals. I do televisits. I call that omni-channel healthcare delivery, number one. Number two, we can connect with them on multiple channels, whether that's text, email, call, phone, messaging, whatever. We can connect with them. That's what you do with the rest of the world. So OBLs are nothing but a clinic, an office where you happen to do a procedure. So first, you got to make sure your clinic is solid. Then over there, you're going to do procedures. And procedural aspects have a few more details that you need. But first, you must have all the clinical stuff. And that's the biggest mistake that I see people make. 
So get a good EMR first that's highly clinical. Then when you're doing procedures, which is nothing but a office-based lab, when you're doing the lab, now you're going to have product, you're going to have inventory, you may need some sedation, you need pre-procedure, post-procedure, you got to dictate your report and that part of it. And I took advanced MD and customized it. We used another one before med streaming, but they spiraled out and they got a whole day, became 5OS and they're doing something different, which is fine. Okay. But there isn't one that is 100% designed only for IR, number one, or number two, for quote-unquote OBL, because OBL is nothing but a cat lab in an office setting. Surgeons do it, cardiologists do it, nephrologists do it. I've done the same thing in a hospital. It's just called a hospital lab, an outpatient. And I think that's the challenge if a young IR, since this is an IR audience, is going to look at this. They've got to take themselves out of that box saying OBL and say, hey, I'm going to take care of these patients. I'm going to do procedures in the lab. I got this information system for it. But what if I do the same thing in a hospital? I need the exact same information. Use an EMR that'll do it. Cerner, Epic are too expensive for this. You can take Athena. The, my two favorites are Advanced MD and Athena. I see. Now you go for an Epic Cerner, they're too much. Yeah. And we all talk about MIPS, Macra, Data, all that stuff. They get a little too expensive, but good programs like Athena and Advanced MD is everything in one all on the cloud. Okay. Moving on, how do you handle claim denials or discrepancies with payers, especially when it comes to newer procedures that we do in IR? Payer relationship management is what I call it. Submitting a claim to a payer is like praying to God. <laughs> Go there, you pray. If God's happy with you, you get something back. Say, thank you, God. Nothing comes up, couldn't go denial or no pay. You pray again. You will never meet a payer and they'll never give you their first name. You can only fax it to them or blah, blah, blah. They just, because they control the purse. Right. So the first thing is to know the payer. And it's fascinating. I've done this a lot. Almost anybody you ask knows they have, oh, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield, I have United, but they don't know the plan. Mm -hmm. They don't know their deductibles. They don't know what it covers. They don't know what their out-of-pocket expenses are. Then they come at a doctor's office and go, oh, I got Blue Cross Blue Shield and they hand it to you. As a doc, as your office, first thing is get to know that. So our patient will come in to say, I've united. So it's like saying, what car do you drive? A Honda. Or which model? <laughs> or a Civic. Which year? What are the details? Same thing with the plan. So what you land up doing, the very first thing is the very first, when they give you a card, there's eligibility verification. Systems do that now if you get a good system. Once they've done the eligibility verification, you can then go in and see what is covered in their plan. Then, so I'll give you an example of pelvic congestion syndrome. I do a lot of that. And the most insurance companies have a policy. They call it local carrier determination, and they publish this. So you can Google it to find it. And each plan from Blue Cross Blue Shield is a federation. So they have multiple states, multiple plans. Each plan has, its, has a medical director and gives you what they cover and what they don't. So for pelvic congestion syndrome, the embolization of the ovarian veins is considered investigational. And then also, they, if you do, like you talk about May Turner, and you're going to go and embolize, the, they consider it, and they write very specifically, you can't do it. So first thing you need to do is, Patient comes to you and say, listen, I didn't choose your insurance. You did. This is a 15000 I'm just making numbers up, $10,000 procedure. Your insurance says this is experimental. 
on the hospital, we're doing pro. We don't care. We just do the procedure. Somebody else deals with it. But when you're an OBL and basically you're an entrepreneur in your own practice, you better know this. So you get the management, practice management, whether it's your team, another company to know this. So you must know first what the local carrier is. Then on top of that, once you know that, your documentation must match. So I'll give you an example. One of the payers said, we will cover this if the patient has symptoms, the patient has had surgery and found no relief, has had all these other things. You have documentation that they are dilated veins and that an MR blah, blah, blah shows it. Now I knew that those were the criteria and she met it. I put that in my note. So, okay, I get that part, but do you have all that information like ready and handy for your first clinic visit when you meet that patient based on what you know, what their insurance is or? So the first inch, when the patient comes in, we do the following. Hi, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who sent you? We have them fill out a form, an intake form. Why are you here? What is the problem? Your review of systems, your insurance, everything else. Before I even see them, the office has already run the eligibility and said, yes, this is the plan. Now, the clinic is covered. The visit will be covered. Some plans, if they're part of an HMO, need a referral even for you to see them in the clinic. Mm, yeah. So that's your, before you see them, your practice management team has to figure that out. You want to call it front desk, whatever you want to call it. That's before they show up. We do that all electronically now, digitally. Once it's done, I'm having a conversation with them, and I've had thousands of these. Yes, what are your symptoms? Everything else good? My first question, I've already checked this out. What is their member plan? What is their insurance? And not just saying United, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, but what is the plan? And I look at it. Do they need a referral? They don't need a referral. Now, let's say they got a referral. I'm assessing them. Now I know they have a certain problem. When I see, okay, it looks like she's bleeding. She's got, you know, we talk about fibroids, and we know that they have uterine fibroids. How do you know this? Well, my gynecologist told me you had an ultrasound. Okay. You could be a candidate for UFE. You meet all the criteria. Now, what's your insurance? It is, let's say, Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO. We have already pulled out what their criteria are. We tell them you're going to need an MRI. You're going to need a pap smear. Well, I already got the pap smear all set. Then one of the tasks is submit for pre-authorization. Whoever on the team, and I had to build this up, when they submit for pre-authorization, they go, okay, here are the clinical notes. Problem, uterine fibroids. Goal, to solve, reduce her bleeding, get her relief of pain, and shrink the fibroids. Okay, now what do I need to do? I send the ICD-10 codes and the CPT codes to the payer, but I need to know the guidelines. Most insurance companies will cover. Some don't cover adenomyosis. Some don't cover endometriosis. When you submit that, you will get a response from them. If you don't know that and you just submit blindly, it's a problem. And most insurances, there's a difference between eligibility, means I have a plan, pre-authorization, some will say I don't need it, and then there's something called predetermination. The insurance plan says, this is our patient, these are the diagnosis, these are the codes. We determine that if everything is met, we will pay for this. Most docs don't go through this trouble. I didn't several years ago. Yeah. And I got all these denials and I learned my way through this. Now when a patient comes up, I know exactly what plan they have. United has 50 plans. One covers, another doesn't cover. 
That's the level of detail you need. Like, I mean, but that's like a totally good example of something that needs to be a systems issue, right? Like, so it is. It is. So, so you, what are the systems that you have in place that your staff can know all the intricacies of all of these plans? It just, it seems, oh. it just seems insurmountable. Yes. So they're not insurmountable. They're like anything else. So what we did was actually about 2014. And I remember United had I'd done a UFE, they approved everything and then they denied it. And I'm like, what the heck's going on? So I started investing. That's where the EHRs are not adequate. Yeah. So what I did was between a combination of Salesforce and a whole bunch of other things that I was working on, I figured this out. So if a patient comes to me, I have all this, what I told you at my fingertips. We have now actually partially commercialized that as well. And we built a system where for us, it takes minutes, not hours, where if a patient comes, you got a blue cross. I sometimes tell the patient right there, oh, you've got this plan. You got well care, this, that, and that. I'm telling you, here's the guidelines. They're not going to cover it. So you either got to go to somebody who's part of the network or I'll do it, but this is going to be out of pocket for you. Or I decide I want to do charity. And that's the system you must decide within your organization. And, if, and that's what you need to do. Are there any features or integrations that you wish that EHR vendors would prioritize specifically for IR practices? See, the IR deeming EHRs don't even have IR on their roadmap. Right. That's the problem. But they have vascular. So they have cardiovascular. They have vascular surgery. They have cardiology. So what needs to happen is instead of saying I'm an IR, you got to start saying, hey, this is what I need for you know, the disease state, PAD, this is what I need for. And then they have that. And I mean, I've developed a lot of these myself and within the community, you do that. But all of these I've learned, there is no out of the box, just open this and you're fine. You're going to be fully functioning. You have to customize it for yourself a little bit. And I've tried, there is nobody who has that. Hmm. Because they're not enough IRs, they're millions of, or I mean, not, several hundred thousand primary care docs, sure. cardiologists vascular surgeons, but general surgeons. But when it comes to IRs, they're only that many. That's we're the, we're the little they fish. They don't want to go after us. <laughs> yeah, but I think the way to beat that is to actually, I've stopped saying, oh, I'm an IR, I'm an IR. I'm a doc. I'm a good human being. I'm a doc. I solve a lot of problems. Half the people come in and they're like, oh, it's this radiologist. I said, no, I'm an intervascular radiologist. I mean, I just, unfortunately, on 9-11, I was on the streets of San Francisco, just randomly attacked by some guy. Oh, my God. I almost died. Yeah, it was oh. crazy. It was all oh, over the no. news, blah, blah, blah. But I'm fine. And I didn't make a fuss of it. I managed myself. And then I'm back in Chicago a few days later, and I am still got back pay issues, whatever. Somebody found out, and a reporter showed up. Ah. I didn't know. He showed up in clinic. He asked me some questions. I told him. And then next I know there's a TV crew there, and then they film me. But the headline said, Surgeon, comma, 62, attack. <laughs> I'm like, okay, he didn't ask me. But now he didn't ask me. I told him I'm an intermassive radiologist, but he used the word surgeon. So this is only like tangentially related. But one time I was on TV and I was wearing scrubs and they called me a nurse. On Like the subcaption was like nurse. I was like, you know how like the hospitals have the badges that say doctor on them? 
I was like literally wearing my doctor badge during this interview. <laughs> and it's like nurse responds. And I'm like, what the heck, man? So, so, so you're right. Like people hear what they want to hear and that their perception is what you make it. But you know, how do you deal with that, right? Is your question. I'll tell you what I did. Yeah. I stopped fighting about, oh, I'm a yeah. universal radio. I'm a doctor. I do a great job. People love me. I love them. I'm solving their problem. So I have trained cardiologists, nephrologists, vascular surgeons. They come to my office. They do all this. They walk around. It's funny. Some of the surgeons think I'm a surgeon. Some of the cardiologists think I'm a cardiologist. And then they go around my office, and then they see a sign that says, RSNA, Kun Laude Award. They go, well, you're a radiologist. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm a doctor, so that's okay. <laughs> We've gotten a little bit off topic. I guess, like, could you kind of already walk me through the typical workflow for an outpatient IR procedure from the consultation? What happens in your eyes, at least after the procedure and then with the post-procedure care in terms of documentation, billing, next steps? Yeah, so it's all in data game, information game. So we've, we've developed on our platform where actually I have a headset, I have a scribe, I'm talking to you, I give all the details. Everything that's required is filled in. And we've learned, for example, Humana, a new trick. They denied a case. United just recently denied a case. I've known this patient for 19, 20 years. He's been my patient. Hey. I've kept his leg intact. I do a lot of pedal access. I got in. I opened his. It was an anterior tib. He had lesions. I fixed it. He had a common femoral lesion. I get through it, but I wasn't satisfied from a pedal approach that I can go and fix even any further. But I got good flow, the profundus filling in. So in my report, I said that you know, there's good flow, but there is a subtotal occlusion. It's not total, there's still flow, and this should be done from a femoral approach mm-hmm. if the patient's symptoms persist. A cardiologist comes on the line, and I said they denied it, then they said poor documentation. I'm like, all right, so tell me what you want documented. I've got every detail under the sun in there. Yeah. Percentage of lesion, plaque, calcium, IVIS. And the doc goes, no, you know, we show a cardiologist. I'm like, doc, do you practice? Now what I do is I actually find their names and I search them up and I do a 360 on them. There are a lot of these guys who work for insurance companies and all they are designed to do is find a way to deny it to save the money. Patient's incredibly happy. His rest pain is gone. He's doing fine. The reason they denied it, because the surgeon said, oh, if there's an occlusion, how can you fix something lower? I said, Einstein, I'll send you the images. This is a subtotal occlusion means I still have flow. It's not a total occlusion. I can't mm. see it from... Now that's a game they're playing just for money, right? Yeah. So then it comes down to documenting it. So I got, ah, United, you don't use the word subtotal occlusion. Then the other one was Humana. Cardiologist comes on the line and he goes, we denied this because the patient cannot have rest pain. I'm like, a patient's telling me he's got rest pain. Yeah. His anterior tibial's occluded. His posterior tibial's occluded. And his ABIs are low. He goes, but the perineal is open. Oh, no. Oh, they're saying, oh, we have one. We have single vessel flow to the foot, so it's okay. So this is Uh-oh. a vascular surgeon who's not practicing, and he's arguing with me. So finally, I said, listen, doc, I know you're paid by them. I'm not going to argue with you. All I would do is tell the patient that, hey, you chose this plan, and I'm going to document that that's what you said. Within a second, he goes, approved, done. Wow. So this is the game that's being played. And so what you have to do, and I'm telling you all this so that Folks who are doing this understand, you've got to get down to the payer level and understand what is it, and you got to make it that they cannot deny. Yeah, when I see this plan now, I yeah. know, mm-hmm. hey, this plan, 
They're going to ask me for this document. So I go extra documentation. I see the dissection. I put the images in the report. They can't deny it now. Yeah. Got your bases covered. Otherwise, it's a game. Yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, first is you're running a business. So how many patients did you see? We have tons of KPIs. That's why you want to pick an EMR that gives you all of that as well. So I exactly know how many appointments were there, how many canceled. I know, for example, every Tuesday morning, I have a dashboard. I get two people on my team come on. They tell me exactly, this is what you did last week. This is what your billings were. This is what your expected payments were. And that's what you want to know. These were the number of cancellations, et cetera. What do you think are the like five most important KPIs when you're first starting out in your practice? Yeah, so it's important to classify what kind of practice. So let's say you're a solo OBL IR doc. Is that what you're saying? Sure, yeah. Okay, so let's say you're a solo. First of all is, how much work did I do? That's your number of appointments, whatever you did. All the work that I did was everything signed and everything built. So that's the second fact. If everything was built, how much does I collect? How much was my denial? There's something called the net collection ratio. Right, right. My advice to IRs who are going to be solo, don't try to do this yourself. You're smart guys. You can figure this out, but just be a good IR and get yourself a good practice management company. You're a good company that you don't need to figure all this out. Work on that system and then make sure that they give you all the answers you want and they are good. So the net collection ratio says, I did my work. I should collect $100. You must collect at least 95 Otherwise, you got a problem. So you need that metric of net collection ratio. Now, all this is available, but EHRs will, one of the first EHRs I looked at is 796 reports. Well, which one do I do? So you need a practice management company who has the knowledge, who understands the processes, and not just give you the software. What do you think the most important things are um, in evaluating a practice management company? Oh, tell them, hey, show me what else have you managed. Show me a sample of what reports you give them on a weekly, monthly basis and talk to those people. Yeah. So I got so frustrated, I actually built my own practice management company called SIMS, C-I-M-S-S. Okay. If you go to C-I-M-S-S.com, it's by physicians, for physicians. I have done this for 40 years. And then could you just touch on a little bit the difference between like a practice management company versus an MSO? Yeah, actually, it's kind of the same if you look. A management service organization, usually, so we built one that manages all aspects of your clinical practice. <laughs> so our SIMS manages Mimit Health, which I founded. And so SIMS runs everything from getting patients to actually providing the care supplies, all the stuff, revenue cycle management, then after that billing, legal, on top of that, all the data requirements, et cetera, et cetera. That is, MSO usually will do, but some MSOs, management service organizations, will give you practice management services a la carte. I see. So actually, believe it or not, SIMS, our MSO, is a advanced practice management company. We've helped a dermatology practice. We've helped a mental health practice. You've held the weight loss clinic because the principles are the same underlying. Mm-hmm. And then we've been able to apply this, you know, we're a multi-specialty group now. So we have primary care. As far as the government is concerned, the A&M codes. Yeah. They don't think your IR, your this, that's just your, what they call it, the taxonomy. That's what your classification is. So as an international radiology, if you build 
for a craniotomy, then I'm going to pay you because it's not mere taxonomy. But in the same way, it goes the other way around. So having said that, you want to talk to a company that one day have done this. A lot of people will just tell you, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you say, verify it, prove it, and talk to somebody who is their customer and, and talk to them, not in their presence, but offline and see what they've done. Just like anything else, you want somebody who's done this before and really, otherwise you spend more time fixing this than actually taking care of patients and really growing and doing what you want to do. So you would recommend that anybody who gets involved in independent IR gets involved with an MSO, basically? Of some kind. Some practice manager. doesn't have to be a big MSO. We've helped many, many guys come in. And, you know, one of the problems we have as IRs is we all entrepreneurial by nature. We want to like innovation. And I say this jokingly, but a lot of the new guys come out, they all think they're Elon Musk. And they... <laughs> And I've had guys that I've interviewed where, you know, they don't want to, they don't, haven't talked to me about patient care. They haven't talked about anything else. And they want to know the RVU. Burr. So I told him, okay, this is the RVU I produced last year. He says, it's impossible. I'm like, dude, this is what I produce. I'm showing you. Here's the number. He goes, oh, how is that possible? I'm like, we have a very efficient model. We take care of the patient. Everything else is taken care of. You don't have to do the scheduling yourself. We have people who do that. You don't have to do the coding yourself. You got a coder. And you find efficient ways to do that. The problem I've seen is they all think they're owners day one, and they've never run a business in their life. And the <laughs> second thing they think is they'll figure all this out. Uh, I'll do it myself. Hey, go for it. Have some fun. But that's where they land up in problems. You know, keeping your overhead costs low. It's like anything else. It never is perfect day one. And I went through in the beginning, you look for value, not just cost. So I remember I somebody... You know, there was a long time ago, I bought a belt. It was a very well-known brand, but was very expensive. Lasted me it's over 10 years. It still looks brand new. Versus I bought another one that was cheap, and two years later, it was gone. So if you amortize that, you look at it, it cost me if you're over five, 10 years. Similarly, things that you do. So if you get a company that costs a little bit more, but they know what they're doing, they're trustworthy, it's better to pay a little more, but have them solve your problems. As an IR, you should not be wondering about, oh, I need to hire a front desk person. Mm-hmm. That's what MSO does for you. Oh, yeah. I need to figure out how to cope this. You should be saying, make the patients fall in love with you, solve more problems, and your problem should be, I have so many patients I'm taking care of, and I can't keep up with it. Versus wondering about how to be a coder that you can get much cheaper at 20 bucks and 30 bucks an hour. You see my point? I sure do. I sure do. Can you talk a little bit more about your involvement with Salesforce and how that became an integral part of your platform? So Salesforce is just a company, number one, and they built, I've been doing technology for a long time and everybody, all they love to do is programming and codes and databases, whatever. Done this a long time. And I remember from the time they were punch cards. I discovered Salesforce where... You know, Salesforce came up with the concept of click no code. It's called declarative programming. Okay. So you don't have to know programming. So the way it worked for me was I had an EHR and I had all these patients and I needed to track, I forget what it was, their phone number or something. And I needed a field. And I told the EHR company, and I'm paying for this. And I said, can I have it? They said, yeah, 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 next release, next release. Five years later, I didn't get it. <laughs> so I discovered this was 2006 or seven or four or something. And I discovered Salesforce and I was playing with it on my phone. You know how long it took me to take the field? Three minutes. No and way. And deployed it. <laughs> Whoa. So I started using that. 
And one of the things Salesforce has done very well, that's why they are growing. They are like 200 and some billion dollars and actually I'm meeting their CEO next week, having dinner with him, is they have developed a system to teach you how to really grow. There's some, they have something called trailheads. They'll teach you whatever. I would recommend that everybody go out and just buy Salesforce. It's just I happen to stumble upon it. Mm-hmm. But I took Salesforce, Amazon, Box, and I started because I have a tech side of my schizophrenic brain. So I used this and started solving problems. Now we have integrated with the EHRs. We've, For example, when we see a patient, and we've created a product out of it, a package out of it, where if you go to a doc, you have your family with you, you may have your spouse with you, but you also have nurse, uh, some nurse taking care of you, some other docs you be to other places. Salesforce is the core platform underneath it. Yeah. And we've learned, so I've got a team that develops all this stuff and has worked all this stuff. That's how we got, but Salesforce has a product called Health Cloud, but it's not ready for you to just buy it and start using it. You need to customize it again. Got it. And- but we have taken Health Cloud and other things like accounting. As an example, you did a procedure today. Can you tell me the exact cost of your procedure and how much you got in revenue? I can tell you that every patient on the Salesforce platform, we track every episode of care. We track every inventory. So Salesforce is a platform. So there's an accounting company that has created an accounting software on top of it. There's a barcoding company that's done it. We put it all together and I was focused on the problem. Inventory, all the medical device companies, they come to you, you have all this quantity, they want bulk, you're buying into a quarter, you're doing all this. Before you know it, you got a million dollars of stuff on your shelf and you don't know how that, what you're doing with it. <laughs> Inventory management companies, they come, they sell you all this. So we just developed it on that platform, but we've tied it in with everybody else. Yeah. So it's like Amazon Web Services, it's like we use Vonage. So you, I'm sure you've taken an Uber, right? Or Uber Eats, Jeff. So then you go... So what happens is on their app, you say, this is my menu. You click on it. They have interoperability with Google Maps. So they say, hey, where are you located? Google gives it to them. So they have what I call APIs. I'm not giving you some tech background. I don't recommend any guy or go do this. <laughs> but you need something that's interoperable. But to the yeah. customer, then you put your credit card information. They most likely have Stripe working that talks to your bank, takes the money out, puts it in, gives it to you. And then... You on your app with an API are seeing where that food is coming to you, <laughs> right? That is all interop. Healthcare is getting there fast, but we have we are kind of the bleeding edge. So we've taken these different systems and started tying them together. Okay. So the minute we add something in the EHR, it shows up on a platform. So I don't say Salesforce anymore. I say our platform, but our platform includes Salesforce, includes Amazon, includes Tableau. So now all our clinical data, you know, when you see a patient, vital signs, puncture site, numbers, whatever you put in shows up in a data warehouse and I can do live analytics on it. My providers get live RVU dashboards on their handhelds. Oh, wow. <laughs> with Target. So it's a very, it took me a long time to be honest, but we built it. Mm-hmm. And I actually have Salesforce on my tail and other people saying, you got to productize this and help other people. I'm like, okay, we'll do that. So we're working on that right now. Very interesting. Yeah. Interested to see it come down the pipeline. All right. Well, wrapping up here, are there any other tools that you would recommend or additional reading that you would recommend for folks who are looking to maximize the efficiency of their workspace? So I think, you know, one of the first things to do is don't do this on your own. Don't do it alone. 
find people who've done this and don't try to reinvent the wheel. Find solutions. So it's like you need to go from here to Boston. You don't say, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to make my own car and then blah, blah, blah. You take a flight. It's already there. The system's already there. Same way, whatever you're trying to do. So that's number one. In terms of reading, as an OBL, if you're going to start your own, you are, remember you're going to be an entrepreneur. Read the E-Myths by Michael Berger. 80% of entrepreneurs are bankrupt within two years. That is a terrifyingly high number. <laughs> but it's accurate. But the reason for that is most people who start businesses want to give themselves a job. Mm. And it takes three things to run a business. First is you are the owner, which is a different mindset. You are the manager of the business, and then you are the technical person. So if in a restaurant, you could be the chef, but you need somebody to manage the restaurant, and somebody needs to own the restaurant and do the investing part of it. If you're a physician, you have physician skills, then you need management. Management skills are all about setting up your systems, whether it's scheduling, our revenue, your credit card, your payments, your revenue, blah, 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 blah. And ownership is, if you had a million dollars that you were going to put in, into your business, what kind of return on investment would you get if you kept it in a bank account or a simple safe investment? Yeah. Let's say it's 10%, maybe 9%. At the minimum, at the end of that year, your business should give you 9% on that million dollars other than just your salary. You see my point? I see. Those are simple business principles that we don't learn anywhere else. <laughs> and the other thing to understand is risk. If you are risk averse, don't think about being an entrepreneur. And that that's what I would recommend in that part. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Chopra, thanks for coming on the show. I feel like we've talked about a wide gamut of things. Appreciate you sharing your background with me as well. And I hope that our audience can take away some pearls from this episode. People can reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn and Great. Just RomiChopra.com. I'm already Dr. RomiChopra.com. They can look me up. So, And I'm happy to help people. I just help tons of IRs, especially ours, because I think they feel a little lost. Yeah. Surgery practices, medicine, they're a little more organized in the mainstream, and IR are still struggling to be recognized in the mainstream. And I think part of that is the more clinics you have, and it should be a no-brainer it becomes easy. Absolutely. If, if that makes sense to you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don. Michael Barraza and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lurie-Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. When you need to restore flow in an ischemic limb, there's no time to lose. You need the Pounce Thrombectomy System. The Pounce System from Thermonics is a purpose-built percutaneous device for removing thrombus and embolus in the peripheral vasculature. 
No capital equipment or aspiration needed. Just grab, go, and restore flow. It's simple. With the pounce system, you place the basket wire distal to the clot, place the collection funnel proximal to the clot, pull back to collect the clot in the funnel, and retract the system through your guide sheath. The secret sauce? The pounce funnel is designed to macerate and dehydrate the clot, allowing you to remove even large amounts of material through a seven French sheath. Visit pouncesystem.com to learn how physicians have used the device to accelerate on-table flow restoration while reducing use of thrombolytics. Pounce thrombectomy, strike quickly to capture and remove clot.